We so much appreciate our veterans, those who've served our country and the freedom uh, that we enjoy because of them, because of their service. And uh, not just freedom for our country, but promoting freedom around the world. Uh, in Scripture, we know that, uh, that warfare is, is sort of a, a fact of life, but that, that if it's a just cause, if there's a righteous reason, and we believe freedom is one of those, that, that, that is a justification for war. And so we appreciate those who are willing to serve to protect those freedoms because there are many in this world that would want to take those away. As we look at Scripture today, we're actually in a series. Uh, for some of you that haven't been here for a while, it's, it's a kind of a different kind of a series. We're actually talking about living in light of His return, and we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. And today, specifically, we're talking about a time when God, in His righteousness, brings judgment, sort of goes to war with the earth, brings judgment, pours out His wrath uh, on, on the world. And so that's what we're going to look at, reminding you that we're, we are actually going through a couple of books in the New Testament as we do this, uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. They're toward the back part uh, of the Bible, the end of the Bible. But uh, we, we ended last time with some questions what is the day of the Lord? What is the seven-year tribulation that, that is prophesied that's going to happen in the future? How, how is all that? How does that play out? And then specifically, we ended with a question to answer today, and, and that is, what is God waiting for? If Paul in the first century, a few years after Christ was killed, resurrected, and ascended into heaven taking that message to people, crossed over into Europe, came to a town, Thessalonica in Greece, uh, met in the synagogue there. Some of the Jewish people believed, some of the non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible, they believed. And as he established this brand new church, persecution broke out. He had to go. They, those new believers got him out of there so he wouldn't be killed. And then he's writing back to, he's wondering how they're doing. He actually sends uh, a protege, Timothy, to travel back to Thessalonica, find out how they're doing. Timothy does that. The church has survived. They haven't all been killed. They're standing strong in their faith. He brings word back to Paul, and then Paul writes them two letters, and, and they talk a lot about end times because Paul had evidently taught them about the end times in the few months that he was with them, with these brand new believers. And if even they were thinking that Jesus could return during their lifetime, and now we're 2,000 years after that, almost, you know, what does that mean? What is God waiting for? Why the delay? Well, actually, Scripture tells us why the delay? And the answer is in, written by Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, and it says this, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
So why, why 2,000 years? Why has God delayed? Well, Scripture's telling us because he's allowing more time for more people to understand the message of God's love for them and the provision of Jesus and put their faith in Christ, he's allowing more and more people to come to Christ, but he clearly tells us that he will not wait indefinitely. Judgment is coming, is what he's telling us in Scripture. And that judgment is called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, we're going to find out more about what that is. It's not confined to one day, but it's a period of time. And especially we're looking at a period of time within what's termed as the day of the Lord, which is seven years that we call the seven years of tribulation. And so some questions as we go through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Paul, writing the church in Thessalonica, is going to answer several questions, and we're just going to track that through and put these questions as a framework to work through the first half of the chapter. First question, how will the day of the Lord come? Okay, if this thing is going to happen, how will it come? And we know the day of the Lord comes after something we talked about last week that's in the previous chapter called the rapture, and again, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's a Latin translation of a phrase that is in the Bible, meaning catching up or snatched away. And what Scripture's teaching is that before this tribulation time, that believers who are alive at that time in history are caught up, are taken out of the, of the earth. And there's some more teaching to that about people who have died, who their souls are already with Christ or in the presence of God, but even their bodies or whatever's left of their remains will be gathered together, glorified, and also caught up and reunited with their souls so they experience a glorified body just like Jesus had after his resurrection. And so that's what's going to happen, called the rapture, but then that ushers in, there could be a small small brief gap of time in there. We're not 100% sure. But then this day of the Lord happens, and they start. To, he's talking about it in verse 1. It says this, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So how will the day of the Lord come? It will come unexpectedly suddenly. And he's telling them, hey, you don't need me to tell you about the times and the epics. And those are two interesting words. Times is a translation of a Greek word, chronos. That just means time as we would typically uh, take it, a duration of time. But then epics is a little bit more uh, focused of a word. It could mean seasons. or It's talking about a period of time in which something significant happens. Like if maybe you are a high school football player, it's back in my football days. It's like that kind of thing, an epic, an era, uh, a period of time. And so Paul's already taught them this stuff. And by the way, what Paul has evidently taught them, we know Jesus also taught during his ministry, and it's recorded for us by people like Matthew, a disciple of Jesus. Matthew, at this time of this letter, is still living. He has not written Matthew yet, so they couldn't have got it from his letter, but they could have got it from oral teaching about people talking about what Jesus taught about. And so then he describes how he'll come 
a thief in the night, unexpectedly and suddenly. And if it's going to happen, if it's going to come unexpectedly, then we might have this second question that Paul's going to answer, which is, well, what is it? What is the day of the Lord? And as I mentioned, it's day is used different times in the Bible. Sometimes it means daylight, sometimes a 24-hour period, sometimes a period of time of many days or years, and that's the sense that it's used here as we see this phrase, day of the Lord, many places in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we understand that it's a period of time, and within that period of time is included these seven years of tribulation that comes at the end, and that's the segment that Paul mainly focuses on as he's writing these people in Thessalonica. And so he continues in verse 3. While they are saying, so, so what it is, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So what is it? Well, it's this time, these seven years, it's destruction. Bad things happen. At this point in history, judgment that was described in Jesus's ministry through his teaching, but also that John recorded for us in the book of Revelation, judgment is coming to this earth, and judgment is poured out. And it's poured out in a series of judgments that are called by the writer of Revelation, the seven seals, and then the seventh seal is seven trumpets that announce yet more judgment, and then the seventh trumpet announces seven bowls, which are more judgments poured out on the earth. And when we think seven seals, we get we're not talking about the animal, right? We're not, it's not a seal. We're talking about seals as a scroll. And so seven seals is, uh, picture a scroll, and then there would be like a wax seal with a, a signet in it, and then you would break that open and you'd roll it down. Well, you'd roll it down a little ways and you'd read some information, but then in some ancient scrolls, there would be another seal. For example, this could go to a, an official in a court and he's to read this and maybe deliver the rest of this somewhere else. And then that other person would break their seal and read a little bit more. And maybe then it goes to the king and the king breaks his seal. And he re and so it's a succession of seals that you open as you unroll this scroll and find out more and more information. Does that make sense? So that's the imagery that is used in Revelation. And remember, Revelation is written, this is John, the apostle of Jesus, who has been shown what's going to happen in the future, but he's trying to describe that in first century language. And so we have all this imagery that sounds really weird and strange to us, and we just need to keep remembering this is a first century writer trying to describe something he has never seen before and something that he has much limited vocabulary to describe than we do today. Does that make sense? So that's how we would see it in Revelation. So Revelation, last book of the Bible, filled with some weird imagery. That's why. And then we have these opening of the seals. And the first four seals are in the form of riders or four horsemen, or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the four riders of the apocalypse or the end times. And so the first seal's broken and that's a white horse comes as the imagery 
conquering, with conquering power to the earth. And then the second seal is broken, and that's a red horse representing war and bloodshed that descends on the earth. And then third, there's a black horse, and that represents famine that happens in the, the land and economic collapse. And, and things get really tough during this time. I mean, it's worse than Bidenflation. It's like it's, it's bad. It says in Revelation that to buy a loaf of bread, it's a day's wage. One denarius for three quarts of barley. So for a loaf of bread for your family, it takes all day to work for that. That's what he's saying. And a lot of people would say, whoa, time out. This is God, loving God. How could God do this to the earth? How could God allow all these bad things to happen? Because God, who is loving, is also just and righteous and says sin will be punished and he will not let sin reign on this earth forever. It is coming to an end, is what God's telling us. And that will happen. And some people say, well, this doesn't compute. But I want to point out that along with this judgment also comes mercy. Think about it. In today's day and age, in every age, we have people that rail against God, that slam God, blaspheme God, criticize God, use God's name for cuss words, that rebel against God, that kill God's followers, or they just ignore God. They're indifferent to God, even though he sent his one and only son to bleed and die for their sins. They're just like, I don't care. I don't give a rip. It doesn't matter. What will it take to wake those people up? Maybe something like this. Because in the midst of this judgment on an unbelieving world, we know that people do come to faith. That's what that's what Scripture describes for us. God will judge. And when judgment comes to this earth, some unbelievers will repent and turn to him, although many of them will be killed. They will be martyred. And we know that especially in Israel, Jewish non-believers that have gathered in Israel, a lot of them will come to faith during this time. The next, the fourth Seal is a pale horse, the pale rider, death, which is from war, plague, and famine. The fifth seal is martyrs, death of the believers, people, because there was no believers when it started, people who have come to faith recently and refused uh, to worship the, the, the new uh, power structure, and then they are killed. And then the sixth seal describes cosmic destruction and worldwide disasters. And we're a little familiar with that because if you'll remember, you know, four or so years ago, uh, there was all this talk about the blood moons. Remember that? And so everybody was buzzing about the blood moons. We actually talked about the blood moons and we said, you know, this is not the blood moons in the Bible, but we had a whole series about that. But, and why did we know that? Because when, the, when this stuff, this cosmic stuff that's described in Revelation happens, by then all this other stuff has happened. This world leader has been revealed. There's been these worldwide uh, catastrophes that have descended onto the earth. And so all this is happening. And by the way, while all this happens, while all this judgment is poured out on the earth, God also raises up 144,000 Jewish witnesses, they're called. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes in Israel, 144,000 
Jewish missionaries, Jewish evangelists that start talking about God's message of Christ and a bunch of people in Israel come to faith because of that. The seventh seal then brings seven trumpets of judgment, seven announcements of further judgment. And we have, we have a timeline up here kind of taking this along with us. And the first one is that a third of the earth is burned. And then, remember, first century language. Here's what it says. Something like a great mountain burning with fire lands in the sea. We would call that an asteroid. They didn't have a word for that in the first century. And what happens is a third of the sea creatures die and a third of the ships are destroyed on impact when that happens. And then the third trumpet, a great star blazing like a torch falls. Okay, we would call this maybe a comet or an asteroid as it streaks through our sky. And the, a third of the fresh water in the world is contaminated. This comet or asteroid is, or star is, is what it's they would word it as in first century language, is called wormwood. It's weird because of this, you know, I'm just doing my regular study and sometimes I'll study about what things, you know, what's happening in the world that's anything like this. And I read some articles, I read this one article that was interesting to me, that they were talking about an asteroid that came very close to the earth. It was the size of a golf cart and it missed earth. But what was interesting about it is that what all the scientists were talking about was we didn't see this until after it missed earth. And so the whole conversation, they think if it would have come into our atmosphere, it probably would have burned up before it got to earth. But the whole conversation was all about how did we not see this? How did it come so close to earth, but we don't even notice it until after it's missed us? So then when you start studying stuff like that, I found, and maybe some of you have heard of this, that in 2029, there's a huge asteroid that is going to come very near to the earth. At first, they thought it would collide with the earth. It's 1,500 feet long, much bigger than a golf cart. And if something that big impacted the earth, it would be huge. Now, they're saying their latest calculations And it's weird, this is 2029, actually April 13th, 2029, they call this thing, oh, they call it Asteroid 99942, which is kind of weird, the 999, because you flip that over, but you know, that's just us. But you know, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying kind of weird, but Asteroid 99942 is going to come near the earth. Now they think it will miss the earth, but it's going to be 10 times closer to us than the moon. It'll, be, it'll miss the earth by one-tenth the distance between the earth and the moon, which is about 20,000 miles. I mean, that, that's significant, but that's kind of freaky. I mean, it's going to be that close, 10 times closer to the moon, it will miss the earth. But if it impacted the earth, and I don't know how you know it's going to, I mean, the moon is held in the earth's gravitational pull, but these guys are a lot smarter than I am and they know it's going to miss. But I'm thinking, well, how heavy is the thing? How do they know what it's made out of? And how do we know that the gravitation might not pull that on in? Who knows? I, I'm not, I am, by the way, I am not saying this is going to hit earth in 2029. I'm just saying it's going to come close. That's what the scientists say. And I'm saying if it did hit earth, stuff like that's described in Revelation or some future one, this is how it would look, this is how it would be described by a first century person that would be trying to, to write this. So that the name of that asteroid, they have a name for it, is 
Apoph, I think it's Apophis, Apophis. But they say that's, you know, would equal like a thousand, or what I hear, a thousand uh, tons of TNT or whatever, but they said it was 100,000 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima if something that large made it all the way to impact, which is, whoa. So anyway, not saying that's going to happen, but here's the interesting thing. So if that happens in 2029, which scientists say that's when it's going to go real close but miss us, by the way, nothing that big has ever come that close to Earth before, so this is kind of unprecedented. Well, here's what's going to happen. People are going to realize that study the Bible, they're going to say, okay, 2029, but wait a minute, that's going to happen like maybe four years into the tribulation. So take four years away, so that's like 2025. And so if that hit in 2029, then somewhere maybe around 2025, that could be the beginning of tribulation. And then sometime before 2025 is when the rapture could happen. You're going to hear all about this, I think. That's my little prophecy, you know. I think we're going to hear stuff about this in the next few years. And again, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just saying, wow, interesting stuff. And of course, now, there was actually a guy that wrote a book, The Wormwood Prophecy, because this is called Wormwood in the Bible. And, you know, by the way, the theological stuff behind the book, it's not good. So I'm not recommending the book, but it's all about this 2029 phenomenon that's going to happen. I, I need to move on, right? Sorry I got on that rabbit trail. Anyway, heading on. So yeah, a bunch of stuff's happening, asteroids, whatever. All right. When the fourth trumpet hits, light sources are limited, a third of light from the sun, moon, and stars. So we don't know if that's a cloud thing hanging over, what's going on, a third of the light is darkened. Demonic or, or locusts that somehow have the ability to torment men like scorpions, they are on the earth for about five months. Don't really know much about that, although they are described in Revelation in more detail. Uh, the sixth trumpet is that an army from the east uh, has a series of battles and that basically uh, impacts about a third of the population of the world is killed during those battles. And by the way, when all this is happening, not only are there 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are preaching and pointing people to God, also Scripture says in Revelation that there are two special witnesses, two special evangelists, evangelists like Moses and Elijah who come, and they have great power, and they're doing the same thing, and they're attacked, and it doesn't work, and they're finally killed. We'll talk more about that next time, so interesting stuff. But all this is happening during the same time where the, con where the population of the world is confronted with God's truth as all these bad things are happening. And then the seventh trumpet is seven bowls. And so out of that first bowl, as God pours his wrath, is that those with the mark of the beast, and we'll talk about that more next time, uh, they have, have sores on their body, and then all the sea becomes contaminated like blood, and all sea creatures die, and then all fresh water becomes contaminated, and we exist on about 1% of the earth's water for fresh water, uh, all humanity, and so there's a problem with that. The sun intensifies, scorches people, there's darkness over the kingdom of the beast, uh, the sixth um, bowl is that the Euphrates dries up. That makes a path from the armies from the east. There's even more bloodshed, more warfare, and all this is setting the stage. And then there are earthquakes, 100-pound hailstones, and then Jesus comes. I mean, that's how it all, that's seven years of tribulation, all the stuff that's going to happen. And then if we look at all that, one question might be, well, if all this is going to happen, remind me again exactly who is going to experience this. 
Well, what we've already been teaching is it's not those who are believers at this time. It's not those who are believers before the tribulation happens because they are taken out. Reference last Sunday, we talked all about that. But then here's how Scripture continues in the next verse, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, but you, brethren, who's going to be involved? He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. He says, hey, you know what's going to happen. You know all about this. And then Paul picks up on this light theme that Jesus used when he preached. I'll remind you of a couple of those. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, then Jesus spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And what he's talking about there is once we become believers, we step into the light. God lets us know we see God's truth. We've discovered God's truth. That's all talked about in Scripture. That's the most popular book in the world, that we understand that. We embrace Christ. We become the light. That means several things. We're light to other people that we can point them to God, but also we live differently. We change. Our lives change because we live in the light. And what Paul's saying is when, if we're living in the light, then we're not surprised by this stuff because we know God's told us this is going to happen. So we know what's going to happen. We're, we're fuzzy on when it's going to happen, but when it starts, we know how it's going to play out. And so he's already told us, and then he describes living in the light in the next verse, verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's calling us as believers to be alert, to be watchful. But not only that, to be warriors, to be engaged with our culture, to be ready to know what's happening, to point people to Jesus so they wouldn't be separated from God. And then the first part of the next verse, very important, it says, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Here is strong biblical evidence that the rapture of the church, the, the caught away, the snatching of the church happens at, before the beginning of the tribulation because he's saying, Paul's writing them and saying, hey, we as believers, we're not receivers of God's wrath. We're not destined for his wrath. We won't go through that judgment, which part of that judgment is God's pouring his wrath out on humanity. That's why it has to be pre-trib, before the tribulation, that the rapture happens. That's, that's strong biblical evidence. And why would we not be part of that wrath? Why would, would Paul say he's not destined us for wrath? Because we as believers know that we deserve wrath from God. We deserve 
judgment from God, but Jesus came to take our penalty. He suffered and died for us. He took our judgment. He absorbed the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. So now we don't experience God's wrath, or then two people would be paying for God's wrath. And because God is infinite and Jesus is infinite, he as one person can pay for everybody's wrath if they'll believe in him. That's why. That doesn't mean that we as believers don't go through little t tribulation. It doesn't mean we don't go through hard times. We do. Scripture tells us that we will suffer loss, that we will go through difficult times on earth, that we should expect persecution as we point people to Christ, as we live our lives, as we try to follow Him. You know, it's not always going to go smoothly for us. God tells us that. But what He's telling us, we won't experience God's wrath. We won't experience God's judgment. We won't experience capital T tribulation, as in the seven years of tribulation. That's not for us who are believers now or who are believers before He comes. And then He continues with the rest of verse 9. He says, hey, we're not, we're not about that. We're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. And when we read that, we're reminded that the best way to prepare for what's coming at the end is that we would obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us, as Paul wrote here. You see, that we, we're not destined to wrath. We obtain salvation. That's what God's given us. And so if you don't know that if you have salvation through Christ, then you need to nail that down. So how do you know that you've obtained salvation through Christ who died for us? Or how do you get that salvation? Well, we know First, we have to understand what, we've, what I already said, that we deserve, all of us, I deserve the wrath of God because of the sin in my life. And so do you. We all deserve judgment from a holy and righteous God because we have all failed to live up to God's righteous standards and he's revealed those to us very clearly in Scripture. But the whole point of the Bible is teaching us not just how we should be, how we should live. It's also teaching us that none of us can pull that off. None of us can be perfectly righteous. None of us could be totally righteous. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. All fallen short of God's standard. And so we have to first get our heads wrapped around that, that we deserve God's judgment. And then the next thing we need to understand is that God's judgment on us is a lot worse than we think because we always downplay our sin and we say things like, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. You know, that's how we think, but I'm not perfect. God says, no, we're not perfect. God says, in God's economy, as God looks, we're not good. We've all done wrong. And justice demands that we be punished for that because that's what justice is. You can't have justice 
without punishing wrongs or punishing evil. So we have to wrap our minds around that. Then we understand that even in our state of sin and rebellion against God, God still loves us. And so in his love for us, he made a way, a a last-ditch effort to make a way for us to come to him. And it's it's a gift, but we have to humble ourselves to receive it. And the gift is that God would allow his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to, to put on humanity, to live a life without sin, a perfect life. That would be Jesus. And in doing that would be the only one qualified to die for somebody else's sins. And because he's infinite, he could die for all of our sins. But it doesn't get applied. His death is not applied to everyone. We have to come to him on his terms. We have to humble ourselves to him. We have to come to him through Jesus. That's what Jesus said. That's what the greatest moral teacher that ever walked our planet said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One way. And so because of that, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. Anybody can come. God invites anyone to come. Unlike other religions, you don't even have to be good to come. Anybody from any place, anywhere can come. But it's the most exclusive religion in that Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other. And so once we understand that our sin deserves punishment, but Christ died for us, then that most important decision we can ever make in life is that we put our trust, our faith our belief in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. That just means that we cry out to God, God, I deserve separation from you forever, but I'm asking you for forgiveness, and I know that's possible because of what Jesus has done, and that's all I got. It's not that, plus, uh, you know, I pay my taxes, or I'm a good father, or anything else. No, it's just what Jesus did. That's all I have, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And then you'll know that you're sincerely a Christian when it shows up in your life, when you demonstrate change, when you start doing things that normally you wouldn't do, but you do them because you're a follower of Christ. You start being less selfish. You start knowing how to love self-sacrificially with not conditional love depending on what you get back. No, you love self-sacrificially. And you have the resources to do that because God has loved you that way. If you don't know you have that relationship, I'm not done with my sermon. I'm, I'm almost there, but I just want to stop right now and invite you to consider that. If you don't know for sure that you've put your trust in Christ that you've called out to him in forgiveness, knowing that you're a sinner that deserves punishment, and knowing that Christ died for you, then you can do that today. And so I'm going to just lead in a prayer right now, and then I'll finish my sermon. But as I pray, again, this is for any of you, if you're not sure that you've already placed your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, understanding your sinful condition, then the most important thing you, you could do 
in your entire life is to do that, and the best time to do it is today. Let's bow our heads. With this prayer, I'm not giving you words that's just an incantation, just words that you repeat that do something. This is your heart. I'm asking you to express in your heart, don't even need to say it out loud, to Jesus these things, something like this in your own words to God. Father God, I understand that I've sinned against you. I've fallen short of your standard, and that's a problem because I deserve punishment. That's what's just. But Father, I'm asking you for forgiveness because I realize you made a way of escape, a way that I can be saved from that judgment. And I thank you that you allowed Jesus to come and that he voluntarily allowed himself to be put to death on a cross 2,000 years ago to pay for my personal sins. God, forgive me based on what Christ has done. And, and God, I'm asking you not just to forgive me, but to come into my life and help me to live it in a way that honors you, in a way that loves you back. In Jesus' name, amen. The next verse in verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And then for the rest of the chapter, Paul goes on to encourage and instruct us on how to live. How do we live in light of his return? He, Paul talks about the importance of being with other believers, with following Christ, being in a community with other people who follow Christ, pointing people to Jesus who don't know Christ, reaching others. And why would we do that? Because we don't want them to experience an eternity separated from God like we deserve, but we didn't have to. We want what we have for other people. And so the last question that we always have that we've kind of answered throughout this is when will the day of the Lord come? It's the same question the disciples ask. They ask it when Jesus is alive. They ask it after his resurrection. When is this happening? When's the day? Matthew 24, 36 records Jesus saying this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. We don't know when all this comes, but when it comes, we know the exact sequence of everything that happens. And because we know that, we can look at things that are happening in our world today and see that the stage is set. It's like, oh, I can see exactly how this could all happen today. And that's clearer than we've ever seen it by, before by a long shot. And it's important that we pay attention because Jesus actually scolded religious leaders in the first century because they didn't pay attention to the signs of his first coming. For you veterans, my dad was a, an old sailor, a, a master chief, and he taught me a saying that I think a lot of you know, so you can help me with this. It says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take you know that was in the Bible? This is Jesus' response 
to the religious leaders that they weren't looking at the sign. Look what he says in Matthew 16, verse 2. But he replied to them, this is Jesus, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? He's telling them, you missed my coming even though the Old Testament, the Bible they had, told them all about his coming, and they still missed it, and he's correcting them about that. So we don't know when Jesus is coming. He told us that we wouldn't. But he's also told us exactly how everything will play out when it starts. And then we could count it down. One year after the next, after the next, all the events that happen. And of course, all of this that happens really revolves around one personality, one world ruler. And I think you know what he is called. And if you want to know exactly who he is and what he does, come back next Sunday and we'll talk about that. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for telling us what's going to happen in the future. But more than that, Lord, thank you for making a way of escape. Thank you for saving us from your judgment in the future, but your judgment at the end of this life by providing your son at great cost. God, thank you for sacrificing for us. Father, help us to be who you want us to be in Christ's name. Amen.